Good afternoon. So good to see many of you today. If you have a Bible, please get ready to turn to Psalm 29. Psalm 29. In the years 2004 and 2005, history recorded two of the world's deadliest natural disasters. I'm sure many of you could recall them back to back. The scale of these storms and the impact of its aftermath are incomparable. On December 26, 2004, the Indian Ocean tsunami, which was caused by a 9.1 magnitude earthquake under the Indian Ocean near the west coast of the Indonesian island of Sumatra, shook the ground violently, unleashing a series of killer tsunamis with waves as high as 100 feet high and 1,000 feet wide. And it sped across the Indian Ocean at the speed of a jet airliner across a dozen countries with Indonesia, Sri Lanka, India, Maldives, and Thailand sustaining the worst damages, devastating all in its path. The tsunamis have been estimated to have released an energy of 23,000 Hiroshima-type atomic bombs. By the end of the day, more than 150,000 people were dead or missing, and millions of more people were homeless in 11 countries or more. And the aftermath of the tsunami left 10,000 more dead or missing, and with destroyed homes and no semblance of viability near them, it resulted in tens of thousands of people being vulnerable to the tropical heat with no food, clean water, and open wounds. And it resulted, as many of you know, an estimate of 230,000 who are killed or missing from this disastrous tragedy across a dozen countries. And you know, just eight months later, on the opposite side of the globe, another horrific natural disaster stemming from an entirely different cause was etched in history, Hurricane Katrina. A devastating Category 5 tropical cyclone struck the Gulf Coast of the United States in August of 2005. With maximum sustained winds of over 175 miles per hour, the hurricane submerged over 80% of greater New Orleans area. The storm killed an estimated total of 1,833 people, the fourth highest of any hurricane in U.S. history, and left millions homeless in New Orleans and along the Gulf Coast of Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama, causing the largest U.S. diaspora to date as residents sought refuge in other cities. Katrina was known as one of the costliest U.S. hurricanes on record, inflicting some $125 billion in total damage. The scale and power of these immense natural disasters are massively daunting. I remember looking at the images of the catastrophe on TV and on the internet, horrified by the sheer number of deaths. Can you imagine? A whole entire city swept away by these storms. And as I was in such shock and was left speechless, I prayed to God and wondered, what was God's purpose in all this? What was God's lesson in the storm? Well, our psalm brings our attention to answer that question for us. And it teaches us a profoundly significant lesson. And it's found in verse 10 of Psalm 29. It says this, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. We're continuing our 15-year intermittent summer series in the Psalms, Summer in the Psalms. And we're two chapters away, including today, from concluding year three of our study. I hope you have been reading along with us in our summer reading assignment to read through the entire book of the Psalms. With nine weekdays left of August, you should be on about Psalm 120 or Psalm 130 to be on track reading two to three chapters with us. Or you can attempt to read about 16 to 17 chapters 
in the remaining nine weekdays of August, and you can get it done. It's possible. Amen? The challenge and encouragement is for us to grow as better lamenters and worshipers of God as we grow more familiar with the hymn book of God's people for generations of biblical history. Now, as I told you a bit already, Psalm 29, in its short 11 verses, stands out as a massively significant psalm. This is why exegesis is so important and helpful, because in the initial reading of the psalm, it's hard to get the full meaning of it. So let me give you some context. Psalm 29 is the central psalm of the third chiastic section of Book 1, chapters 1 through 41, which composes Book 1. There's five books uh, in the entire book of the Psalms. And Brother Brian Boone, he's not here today, uh, sent me a helpful article, which I'll attach to our weekly newsletter, by Pastor David Schrock, a friend and a trusted theologian, who says it this way. Psalm 29 is the third creation psalm and the third mountaintop in Book 1 of the psalm. Here's a helpful graphic, if you can see it. You see the structure of book one of the psalm, four chiasms, one, two, three, and then four, that I've been mentioning throughout the series. And as you see how Psalm 8 and Psalm 19 and Psalm 29, today's psalm, forms the central emphasis of the three sections, the three mountain peaks, according to Schrock. Another biblical scholar says these three psalms are the hymns of praise of the psalms of this section. The fourth chiasm is a bit unique, but we won't have time to deal with that till next summer. Well, Schrock makes a point as the Psalms are arranged this way. We might read Psalm 8, 19, and 29 together and see how the God of creation was to be worshipped by mankind in Psalm 8, in response to the Word of God in Psalm 19, and ushered into the temple in our Psalm today, Psalm 29. And furthermore, we can see how the theme of glory connects these creation Psalms 8, 19, and 29 together. So, Psalm 8 says God crowned mankind with glory and honor. Psalm 19 speaks of God's glory displayed in creation. And Psalm 29 speaks of God's glory coming into the temple. Next week in Psalm 30, you'll learn that it is a psalm about the temple dedication. If you look at Psalm 30 real quick, at the heading, that's what it says, right? A psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. So Psalm 30 is about praising God for the salvation that he offers, a salvation the psalmist prayed for in Psalm 28 that Brother Jeremy preached a few weeks ago. So if you look at Psalm 28, verses 8 and 9, the psalmist had prayed, the Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. O save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. And so in these ways, even through the structure of the psalm in book one, we see the manifold glory of God. He is emphatically, God is emphatically glory, glory, glory. And creation cries, holy, holy, holy to him. Well, that's exactly the message of Psalm 29, to highlight the glory of Yahweh. He is glorious and worthy to be praised. So from Psalm 29, I want to share with you three reasons why God is glorious. Here's the outline so you know what's coming. You'll easily see it in our psalm by the natural breaks. So point number one, verses one and two, from verses one and two, God is glorious over all other gods. Verses one and two. Point number two, God is powerful over all creation. From verses three through nine. 
And point number three, God reigns over all eternity, verses 10 and 11. Let me say that again. Point number one, God is glorious over all other gods. Point number two, God is powerful over all creation. And point number three, God reigns over all eternity. You can take the graphic off. Brothers and sisters, God is glorious and worthy to be praised. Amen? Let me say that again. God is glorious and worthy to be praised. I pray this word will remind you of that reality today. The psalmist has shown us in previous chapters that God is worthy to be praised amidst all of our trials. But through our psalm today, the reason to praise God is even more highlighted. Our gracious and merciful God is actually the most majestic, magnificent, powerful creator God. He is not a weak God. He is not a small God. He is not a puny God. He is not merely the God of a particular group of people. He is not one God among many gods. He is the one true living God. He is the Lord and King of all. What does that mean for you and me? No matter what you are going through in this life, no matter how difficult this week has been for you, no matter what difficult circumstances have come your way, God is greater than all. Amen? God is greater than all. So look to Him today. Give Him the praise that is due. That is the message. That is the psalm. Guests and visitors, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us at our weekly Sunday gathering. If you do not know yourself to be a follower of Christ, we especially welcome you today. We've been praying for you. And so we believe God in His divine mercy brought you here today. You're not here by coincidence or mistake. And we believe that God has a word to speak to you this afternoon. He deserves your worship. He is worthy of our praise today. You see, in this life, everyone worships something, whether it's self or security or someone else or sex or money or other pleasures. This word reminds us that the God of the Bible, Yahweh, is the only one who is truly worthy of all of our praise. And we pray through this word you will continue to understand the reasons why and that you will come to see and know Jesus as your good and gracious Savior, Lord, and King today. So without further ado, let's turn to God's Word, found on page 461 of the Blue Bibles around you. And as you turn there, I want to encourage you to please keep your Bibles open for the entire duration of my message and reference it often as I read and preach so that you know this is God's Word for you to grow you in faith and build you up in Him. Psalm 29 says this. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Amen. 
Why is God glorious and worthy of all praise? Point number one, God is glorious over all other gods from verses one and two. Look with me to those first two verses again. It says this, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The first observation we can make is that these first two verses basically sets forth the one point of the psalm. The rest of the verses are actually the reasons for the main point. So exegetically, one point, but homiletically I'm giving you three points. Well anyways, the main point of the psalm is ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord glory to His name, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The word ascribe means to give unto the Lord. God is glorious and worthy to be praised. But not because God is a glory hog who needs our attention. Not that us glorifying Him will add anything to Him, make Him something that He already is not. The psalmist tells us the glory is due His name in verse 2. Because he is so radiant, so glorious, so holy, so full of splendor, he is worthy of praise. Glory is his name. Glory is who he is. I'll never forget the occasion of my first experience of being starstruck by a well-known public figure. He was a former president, probably the first time I've seen someone of such stature in person when I was in college. And listen, I'm not even typically a fanboy like that. Well, generally speaking... John Piper, maybe. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, if he was alive, probably. Well, this politician was someone I didn't like very much, actually. I was just wanting to see, who is this guy? Our university had paid him, back in the day, $100,000 for him to come and speak. He was three hours late to this event. I was angry, and so was everyone else. Why was he so late, and why wasn't he coming out? I'm getting hungry. But as soon as he came out... The stadium erupted with applause and they just full-on standing ovation all across the stadium. And I kid you not, I don't know what God in me. I don't even like this politician. But I just automatically stood up with the crowd. And I started clapping. Whatever expensive food he was eating, whatever well-tailored suit he was wearing, whatever spotlight was shining on him seemed to make him glow. And I stood there with a crowd of thousands clapping an applause and ovation for nearly 10 minutes. Woohoo! Just going crazy. But this was just a man, an extremely powerful and respected man at the time, but just a man nevertheless. He was a mere mortal like any of us. He was a sinner like all of us. Yet God is unlike any other. And this psalm is unlike any we have seen before. It consists entirely of praise. Other psalms, of course, praise God as well, but almost all are mixed with something else. A lament, or with petitions, or with applications on how we should live in light of His glory. But this psalm, Psalm 29, has no other elements. According to Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, this psalm is one of pure praise. It doesn't call upon us to do anything because the psalm itself is doing the only thing it is concerned about, about praising God. And the psalm is very clear and specific about why, you see. The psalm is holy and thoroughly about Him and Him alone. 
It's a perfect example of a prayer of praise. Brother Philip could have just come and read this psalm for us, and we would all have said, Amen, and Amen, and Amen. This psalm is perfect. Not only is the psalm, according to Boyce, pure praise, the psalm is also pure poetry. To be sure, all psalms are poetry, but this psalm reaches new poetic heights. The chiastic center of the third chiasm of book one is significant, as I shared with you. But furthermore, you may recall that the chief elements of Hebrew poetry are repetition and parallelism, and this psalm is built upon them, as you can see so easily, so apparently. Eighteen times in just 11 short verses, the word, the Lord, is repeated. In the English translation, the word capital L-O-R-D means the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is the self-revealed name of God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible. You see, many believe in different gods and call him by different names, but Yahweh is the name of the God that we trust. No other name, no other God exists or compares to him. That's why the psalmist calls on the heavenly beings to ascribe Yahweh glory due his name. And the use of parallelism, each phrase draws us deeper into his glory. Ascribe to Yahweh, ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. He is God of glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh glory due his name. Glory is his name. He owns it. He defines it. Worship Yahweh who resides in the splendor of holiness. He is wrapped in holy splendor. There is no one like him. He is holy, set apart. He is unlike any other. These verses means to elicit a glorious worship beyond any other worship comparable. An entirely different kind of worship. A unique worship duly belonging to him alone. Duly belonging to Yahweh alone. Not the kind of fake applauding I did to this politician, swept up by the emotion of the crowd or because I was starstruck. A deserving worship unto the glorious Yahweh, the one and only. Now we have to go back to the word heavenly beings because for those of you who read it carefully, the psalmist is not calling you and me. The psalmist is not calling us or his people or even God's creation to ascribe him glory and praise specifically it's calling heavenly beings. Okay? What in the world does heavenly beings mean? The Hebrew phrase is literally translated sons of God. Sometimes translated sons of the mighty. The meaning of these words are slightly debated among theologians. So let me give you some ways that theologians understand this phrase. Some say these are powerful ones. Human beings of great influence and stature on earth. The gods, lowercase g, of the earth, kings, rulers, presidents, etc. Some biblical scholars say that heavenly beings were a reference to angelic beings, six-winged fiery seraphims surrounding God on his throne continually and exalting him, holy, 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 as according to Isaiah 6. But the key comes from the context of the psalm. As I mentioned in the introduction, the psalm brings our attention to the most interesting and unusual verse in the psalm, in verse 10. The summary verse of the psalm. So let's consider the first phrase for now. Yahweh sits enthroned over the flood. Think about that. What in the world does that mean? God sits enthroned over the flood. Now in trying to understand the meaning of that standout phrase, we have to consider the context. The term flood occurs 13 times in the Old Testament. 
12 of those occurrences are in Genesis 6 through 11 in reference to Noah's flood. The 13th time, the 13th use is the word here in Psalm 29.10. And so in combination with the references of the voice of Yahweh over the waters and the destructive images of the flood waters uh, from verses 5 through 9, it teaches us, it indicates to us that the whole of the psalm is David's theological reflection and response to the Genesis flood, to Noah's flood. Hence, verse 10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. Are you with me so far? The context of Psalm 29 is the flood, and the theme is that Yahweh is to be praised as the king of the flood. Hence, back to the question, who are the heavenly beings? Who are the sons of God? Borrowing from Dr. James Hamilton's insights here, in context, it is written in Genesis 6-2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And we see in Genesis, the flood account, their transgressions were immediately followed by the flood because of their transgressions, these angelic beings' transgressions. You can reference more verses in Scripture. 1 Peter 3, verses 19 and 20, and Jude 6, regarding these heavenly beings. Hence, I agree with Dr. Hamilton that the sons of God referenced here are fallen angels who were judged by the flood of God, whom the psalmist calls upon here in Psalm 29.1 to ascribe glory due to Yahweh because these heavenly rebels did not stand a chance with God's splendor of holiness nor withstand the might of God's justice. Are you with me? Heavenly angelic beings are no match for Yahweh. They are called upon to ascribe due glory to the one true God, God of all gods. Not that there are any competition even. Not that there is any comparison at all. Yahweh is creator. The rest are his creation. Mere creatures, heavenly or earthly. Okay, well, we get that Yahweh is glorious, but he calls heavenly beings to ascribe him glory and worship him. But why should we? Why should we Mere mortals worship Yahweh. That's point number two. Look at verses three through nine. Point number two, God is powerful over all creation. Look with me to those verses again, three through nine. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The psalmist's pure poetic prowess are made pointedly prominent in these verses, isn't it? With the use of repetition and parallelism here as well. Seven times the phrase, the voice of Yahweh, is used. There is no need to make any guesses here, brothers and sisters. The psalmist is driving a very clear point. The psalmist is reminding us of the seven-day creation account. Verse 3, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. It's supposed to be reminiscent of Genesis 1-2. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Are you getting the point? Yahweh is the Lord of creation. And as Shrock again says, from the drumbeat of the Lord's name and the voice 
The psalm follows the storm of the Lord, ripping through the coastland, the cedars of Lebanon, onto Syrian in the center of Israel, to the wilderness east of Canaan. Psalm 29 follows the path of God's thunderous voice like storm chasers would follow a tornado. That's the picture, that's the image we get from this psalm. And the force of this psalm is to emphasize the truth as if almost to make us feel the truth that the God who sits enthroned over all creation has the power to do whatever he pleases. Yahweh is capable of doing whatever he wants. He has the power to create and to destroy however and whoever he pleases. The cedars of Lebanon, referenced in verse 5, were known throughout the ancient Near East as the most spectacular, beautiful trees in the region. It's told Solomon imported cedars from Lebanon to build his palace and the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. Even today, the Lebanese flag has the outline of a spreading cedar tree in the center. But the point is this. Even these majestic trees, tall trees, snap like matchsticks at the sound of God's voice. In verse 6, Lebanon and Syrian are references to two great mountains. When Yahweh speaks, His voice shakes these ginormous, magnificent mountains. As one commentator notes, His is only more powerful and glorious than the waters of the sea. His voice shakes the hills as His lightning strikes the mountaintops. The Canaanites believed that Mount Lebanon and Mount Hermon in Syrian were abodes of the gods. But when Yahweh speaks, even these mighty mountains skip like a calf and like a young wild ox. The Lord displays His glory once again over the idols of Canaanites. Finally, the storm moves over the wilderness of Kadesh in verses 7 and 9. It says, The voice of Yahweh flashes forth flames of fire and shakes it up. And the funny, interesting phrase there, makes the deer give birth. Actually, should be translated, as some biblical scholars argue, makes the oaks shake. That would be more fitting in the context. But I think both phrases work. Uh, the powerful lightning and thunder of the voice of Yahweh makes the deer give birth prematurely, makes the oak shake. His supercell thunderstorms are stunning and shocking and fear-inducing, and deers are giving birth prematurely. That makes sense too. It strips the forest bare. If you've seen the images of the deadly wildfires in Maui, we get a glimpse of what this may look like how fierce storms and fires could flatten an entire forest, just like that. From cedars of Lebanon in the central temple of Jerusalem to the outskirts and to the wilderness of Kadesh, the borders of Israel, the voice of Yahweh rings out terrifying, powerfully devastating all that stands in its path. As one commentator says, Genesis 1 tells us Yahweh spoke with creative power, and in Psalm 29 tells us he can also speak with destructive power. It's the reason why to hear merely the voice of Yahweh, his power of creation demands all in his temple to cry glory. That's what it says at the end of verse 9. So powerful and awful is his power. All cry glory, glory, glory. That is the picture. By context, the temple seems to indicate the realm of the whole earth. Yahweh is powerful over all creation and demands from His creation His due glory. 
The knowledge of God through general revelation alone prompts all, everything, every creature to fall on their face, prostrate in worship, to cry glory. Picture that. When a hundred foot high, thousand feet wide tsunami is coming your way, you didn't heed the warnings of evacuation, and you're standing there and the tsunami is coming. Uh, When category five hurricane is coming at you, or when supercell thunderstorms is coming after you directly and you have nowhere to run, you don't try to hide at that point. You don't try to run. You don't try to brace yourself. All of it is useless. What do you do? You just surrender. You just stand there. You cry glory. Wow, this is amazing. As if those reasons are not enough to ascribe Yahweh praise. There's still more. Yahweh is glorious and worthy to be praised. Third and finally, because God reigns over all eternity. From verses 10 and 11. Look with me to those final two verses, verses 10 and 11. It says this, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. You see, the experience of God's presence in Psalm 29 is similar to the experience of the Israelites in Mount Sinai. Fire, thunder, and earthquake shook the mountain. The experience was so overwhelming that the people of God beg not to hear the voice of God anymore. So if you write down Exodus 20, verses 18 and 19, it says this, Exodus 20, 18 and 19. Now all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking. The people were afraid and trembled. They stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us, Moses, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we all die. Which is the reason why this psalm is so shocking and stunning, brothers and sisters. Again, as Boyce said, this psalm is pure praise. As Schrock says, glory from beginning to end. This is what 2 Corinthians 3, 18 means when it says, and we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another glory to glory that's what we get to experience as I said already I believe verse 10 is the key Yahweh sits enthroned over the flood Yahweh sits enthroned as king forever brothers and sisters I hope you are following what I'm saying the flood king is also the forever king the God of judgment is also the God of peace brothers and sisters what is the key What is the psalm of glory and praise to? Who is the king of glory? Who is the king of peace? Who is the voice of Yahweh that brings both judgment and peace? Who is the greater Moses who speaks on behalf of Yahweh's people so they all not die? This powerful voice referred to seven times, the Hebrew way to signify the perfect, divine, and the complete voice of God. It was pointing forward to the voice of of Jesus Christ, who himself is the very word of God. As John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God speaks to us powerfully through Jesus Christ. As Hebrews 1 verses 1 through 3 says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Hallelujah. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. 
It's the best news you will ever hear. That as the word of God, Jesus spoke with power in this world. He healed the sick. He hushed the storms. He casted out demons and raised the dead by the word of his voice. More importantly, he was the promised and prophesied word who would bring us peace. He was the fulfillment of God's word. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace to men on whom his favor rests. He was God, the incarnate word, God in flesh. He was the substitute sacrifice who took upon himself the full judgment of sin, the just wrath of God on all men. On the cross, Christ died the death that we should have died to pay the punishment we would have paid in eternal hell in order that we might become the righteousness of God and have new and eternal life in him. Brothers and sisters, this was made possible. Because just as it was written in the word of God, Jesus Christ would rise again from death on the third day, proving who he truly was, the word of God, the son of God, made flesh who would be raised to sit enthroned at the right hand of God. Jesus Christ is the flood king and the forever king. Hallelujah. And that's why verse 11 rings true for all of God's people who know and trust him today and throughout all the generations. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. He has done it. He is doing it, and he will finally do it once and for all, forevermore. Revelation 19, 11 through 16 says, In the end, Jesus will crush all his enemies once and for all with his voice. The voice of the Lord Jesus Christ will humiliate and devastate Satan and all his armies, it says. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called, the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the wine princes of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has his name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Brothers and sisters, guests and visitors, Jesus is glorious over all other gods. Jesus is glorious over all his enemies. Jesus is powerful over all creation. And Jesus rules and reigns forevermore for all eternity. If you are here and you do not consider yourself a Christian or are not sure that you are, I wonder if you know Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords. If you do not know him, creation shouts clear, You only know God as the God of judgment. That's what creation tells us. Romans 1.20 says, For his attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly displayed ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, and so they are without excuse. If you are here and you are not a Christian, you are without excuse that there is a God who is powerful and creative and orderly and beautiful and demands your worship today. Friend, what this means is that when the time of trial and testing and judgment comes, you have no excuse. Through his word, the Yahweh of glory extends you peace through Jesus Christ right now, this moment. The mediator of the new covenant who speaks a better word, Jesus Christ. The word of God, the word of the good news that you just heard is being spoken to you right now for you to respond. 
I want to implore you, don't reject his mercy and grace by rejecting this word or by rejecting his son. Repent of your sins. That means to turn from your sins. Turn from trusting the things of this world or yourself or whatever it is that you worship. Believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you and trust him with your whole life today and tomorrow and forevermore. He is worthy of all glory. Glory is his name. Amen? If you want to know more about how to follow Jesus, the pastors of this church will be happy to speak to you more at the close of service at the back doors or talk to somebody smiling next to you. We have been praying for you. We want to talk to you about how you can follow Jesus for the rest of your life. It's awesome. It's amazing. Dear beloved New Covenant Baptist family, are you giving Yahweh the glory due his name? Seriously. Think about it. Examine your hearts today. Do you worship him in spirit and in truth? Do you worship him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Or do you merely worship him with your lips, with cheap words, when your heart and mind is far from him? Psalm 29 demands and reminds us again, ascribe to him the glory due his name. For those of us who have been blessed to know his peace, how much more ought we to praise him with everything for all our days, those of us who have experienced the peace of God that transcends all understanding. Do we not know the peace of God which surpasses all understanding? Something happens and we don't understand it, but we have the peace of God. Amen? We know the sovereignty of God that he is in control, which will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus to the end. Does he not provide us strength in all things to overcome whatever earthly trials that come our way? Psalm 29 requires one thing of you, his due praise. Ask yourself, what are you holding back these days? What fears, what doubts, what ills, what comforts hold you back from worshiping him? All the glory that he deserves. In and through it all, brothers and sisters, let us, members of New Covenant Church, give him all the glory because only in him you will know more and more and more of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this powerful, sweet reminder that you are a God who is over all, over all other gods, over all creation, over all eternity, that you reign supreme. Father, so many of us this week, through the various trials of life and temptations of life, uh, we worshiped ourselves, we worshiped other things, but Father, what a reminder you give us today to worship you, the glory that is due your name. Father, may this church be marked by such praise, such worship, worshiping in spirit and in truth. And Father, may those who do not know you in this place, who have heard your word, respond in surrender. May all cry in this place, glory, 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 holy, 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 because you are the glorious God, worthy of all our praise for all our days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.